Hey, well, good morning, Story. It is so good to be back with you. You know, I have a great fear when that great music is going on that my mic is somehow on. And, like, you're picking up my voice. That would ruin everything. So it's good to be back with you. Eric and Gio out of town. And my name's John Hopper. If you haven't been here when I've been here before, it's great to be with you. And I hope that uh, this Labor Day weekend that you aren't laboring too much. And I hope, uh, actually, that you're... You have an opportunity to try something new, maybe going somewhere to eat that you've never gone before, trying something out, some sort of activity, although now it's raining, but maybe you can try something in the rain you've never done before. Last weekend, I, I had an opportunity to do something new. I was invited to be a part of this group of men that went up to Colorado, and I love being outdoors, but I'm not much of an outdoorsman. And my father didn't hunt or fish, so I never really learned to do those things. And, and as a part of this weekend, there's going to be three days of fly fishing. And so the day before we started fly fishing, a guide came and he uh, was t- teaching us to do some things, some different kinds of casts and how to mend and strip a line, how to set a hook, those kinds of things. And the next morning we wake up, you know, some of the guys, they knew what they were doing, but I didn't. But I kind of looked the part, you know, I had the fishing shirt on and the right hat and I had... Uh, you know, my quick dry shorts, and I, you know, I knew some of the lingo, right? But I didn't know what I was doing. And, and the first morning, I caught the smallest fish that any of the guides had ever seen before. It was about an inch and a half long. They're like, how in the world did you catch this fish? Now, it got better for me as, as we went along. But if you were on the outside and you were a part of fly fishing and you saw me for just a few seconds, you would know this guy, you know, he might try to, t- you know, say the words and use the lingo and play the part, but he doesn't know what he's doing at all. And I like to think that's the only skill that's true for me. But it's not. There's, there's other things where I, I kind of know a few things about something and I, you know, I kind of look the part, but I don't really know what's going on. I play a lot of tennis and sometimes people show up playing tennis and, I mean, they got the newest racket and all the latest gear and they don't even know how to keep score yet, right? I mean, it's like they're playing dress up. And sometimes we play dress up in life. And that's okay in different areas. But it seems to me that when we come to Christianity, If we know the lingo and we can kind of play the part, if we sort of dress up, but we don't really know what it's all about, that that could kind of get us in trouble. So not long ago, well, it's probably actually a couple years ago now, I was was at Rice University. I was at one of the student eateries, and I was at a table with a a couple students there. and, And one was this young Asian gal, and another was Matthew. He sometimes plays the cello here. And during that year, uh, I had been in conversation, Matthew had been in conversation with this gal uh, about... Christ. And she had picked up some things along the way. But I asked her this question at that lunch. I said, if there was one question you could ask about God, Bible, Christianity, what would you ask? And she said, I just want to know what Christianity is all about. So she had picked up little pieces, but she hadn't really figured out what it's all about. And you know, as I meet with people around Houston, and I'm in different conversations with people, I often ask them that same question that that gal asked me. I say, you know, if you had to describe what Christianity is all about, how how would you describe it? And I need to tell you that there's a lot of people that, you know, at least dabble in church, or maybe they had a church upbringing. Maybe they go all the time. Maybe they know some of the lingo, and they even sort of look the part. When it comes to that question, they sort of fumble and stumble, and not really sure how to answer it. 
And so we've been looking at questions all summer long. We're looking at questions that kids ask, looking at questions adults ask. And it seems to me that, that this question is a question we can't miss. We've got to know what Christianity is all about. So that's what we're going to look at today. Now, to answer this question, what I want to do is I want to break it down into two questions today. Two sub-questions. And the first question is simply this, how do we become a Christian? And then the second question is, once we become a Christian, how do we live the Christian life? I think if we can answer those two sub-questions, we can answer that larger question of what Christianity is all about. So first question, how do we become a Christian? So I'm going to share with you, just in my own words, how I think someone becomes a Christian. And I'm going to try to use, not use any religious terminology. If you've been around the church for a long time, you might hear words like justification or sanctification, salvation. and You might throw those words around too, but sometimes that can muddy the water. Like, what do we really mean? How is it that someone becomes a Christian? So here's how I would describe it, as simple terms as I can. To become a Christian, a person first must come to the understanding of who they are, their upbringing, their stature, that kind of thing. What they've done, how they've lived, their good deeds, their maybe not so good deeds, the things they've done in the community, in the home, school, whatever the case might be, and what they possess, their talents, their treasures, that none of that is good enough to be made right with God in this life or the life to come. Secondly, in order for a person to become a Christian, they must come to that understanding that what God has done, namely through His Son and through His crucifixion, of Him paying the price for our shortcoming, that that is enough. It is enough for us to be made right with God in this life and the life to come. And then thirdly, in order for someone to become a Christian... They must come to that place where they wholeheartedly want what Christ has done on their behalf. So you could know the facts about the first two things. Yeah, I know, I fall short all the time. and well, That's pretty cool that Jesus, yeah, he, he died for us. But, you know, maybe that's for later for me. But to become a Christian, we must come to that third place where we wholeheartedly want what Christ has done for us. It's pretty simple there. We have to recognize we have a need, a great need. We have to recognize that God sort of has dealt with that need. And we have to want what He has provided for us. Now, those are my words. That's how I would describe how someone becomes a Christian. But I, I don't want you to leave you just with my words. I want you to see Jesus' words on this matter. Because Jesus, He answers this question. He does it in a number of different places. But, but quite graphically, in this one conversation that He had... And so we're going to look at John chapter 3 this morning. And there, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. And Nicodemus wasn't your run-of-the-mill guy. He, um, he was of the religious elite. There was a Jewish ruling council, a, a religious council. It was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 72 men, and he was one of those 72. He knew the lingo. He knew how to play the part. But he wasn't clear on how to be right with God. 
And he and Jesus get in this conversation about how to enter the kingdom of God, how to be right with God, in essence, how to become a Christian. And they go back and forth. And every time that Jesus says something, Nicodemus says, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. And then Jesus provides this illustration. And when Jesus provides this illustration, Nicodemus doesn't say anymore. It's as if, okay, now I get it. So this is the illustration that Jesus used. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, he he would get what Jesus is saying because he knew the story of Moses and the snake in the desert. He was steeped in the scriptures, and so he would have known that story. But many of us, we don't know this story, and so I want to pa- unpack it this morning because we, we have this story of Moses and the snake in the desert. It's, it's in Numbers 21. And I think if we understand that story, this little illustration that Jesus used with Nicodemus, boy, it comes alive. So Numbers 21. We get to Numbers 21. The Israelites have been saved out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and, and now they're in this desert. After being miraculously saved by God, they're in this desert that's between Egypt and the land they had promised. And they weren't supposed to be in that desert for very long, but they were always complaining, so God wanted them to stay there a little longer to learn a few things. Well, when we catch up with them in Numbers 21, they're still complaining. And this is what we read. It says, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Yeah, you did all this miraculous thing to get us out of Egypt, but it's just a, a ruse. You know, really, you know, you, you brought us here to die. There is no bread. There is no water, which wasn't really true. They just didn't like the bread and the water that they were getting. And they say, we detest this miserable food. The food was coming from God. And we say, we don't like the menu you're serving, God, here. They're complaining. <laughs> and then it says this. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Look what God did in response to this prayer. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who has bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now sometimes, you know, we we go to movies to entertain ourselves. And some of the movies we entertain ourselves are pretty crazy. Like movies where creatures take over the world, like apes, prehistoric creatures. And we entertain ourselves with that. But I can tell you, if you're living in this time... And all of these snakes started taking over the, the, the part of the land that you were living in. It wouldn't have been entertaining, right? It would have been crazy scary. And that's exactly what happens here. People are dying. They cry out to Moses. Moses, do something. <laughs> Moses prays. And God says, make this pole. Put a bronze snake on it. And have people look at it to be saved. Ever wonder why the medical symbol is a pole with a snake around it? It's from this story, calling people to look, the snake on the pole, to be saved. (laughs) Now, let's suppose that you lived in that time, and 
you know, snakes started coming up out of everywhere. And so you grab your family and you go run in your tent. And you're like watching all the points where they could get in. And one comes in and you're able to keep it away. You know, you hit it somehow, but soon they're just coming in all over the place. And they bite you and they bite your family. And you don't know what you're going to do. And everyone, your whole family, you just start crying and wailing in your tent. And, and your neighbor hears it. And your neighbor comes by and says, hey, have you heard? Have you heard? What? Well, there's this pole that, that God had Moses make. It's this, it's this pole with a bronze snake around it. And if you, if you go and you run and you look at it, you'll be saved. So what, what would your response be? I figure there's a few responses you could have. You could say, well, thanks for the info, but, I, but I'm good. You know, I'll just take care of this venom on my own. I'm fine. You could say, yeah, right. I mean, just explain to me scientifically how that works out. If I get out and look at that, how, how is this going to make me better? Or you could say, well, I'm glad that that solution's worked for you, but I, I don't think it's for me. I mean, I'm into silver snakes, really, not bronze snakes. You, know? so. you could say, well, that, that's great information. I'm, I'm glad to know it. We you know when things get really bad, then maybe I'll consider it. Or you could say, well, I, I believe everything you say. In fact, I'll even sign a document that says that I believe it. But, you know, getting out of my tent and go looking at that pole, that's, that's a little too much for me now. But you know, if you'd taken any of those options, it wouldn't have gone well for you. You'd be dead. <laughs> the only way that you could be made well is if you got out of your tent and you went and you looked at that snake on a pole. Now look back at me, with me, at what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He says, hey, Nick, <laughs> you want to know how to get right with God? Well, well, here's the thing. You've been bitten by a snake called sin. And, and you're going to die apart from God. But there's a way out of this mess. There's a way that you can be made right with God. And that's to look to me. It's to look to what I'm about to do when I'm lifted up on a pole on a cross. And it's only if you look to me, Nicodemus, that you will find life. Now look back at my original explanation of how someone becomes a Christian. Number one, to become a Christian, a person must come to the understanding that who they are, their position, their stature, their lineage, how they've lived, what they possess, it's not good enough. None of that matters if you've been bitten by a snake. <laughs> if I'm a Christian, a person must come to the understanding that what God has done by sending his son be crucified on our behalf to pay the price for a shortcoming, that that is enough. That snake on a pole, it is enough. And then you've got to come to that place where you say, that's what I want. I wholeheartedly want it. And you get out of the tent and you say, it's you, Christ, and you alone that makes me right with God. 
So I said at the beginning today that we're looking at the question of what is Christianity all about? We want to look at two sub-questions. How someone becomes a Christian, and we've pretty much answered that now. But I want to turn us now to the question of how we live the Christian life once we've become one. Because that's equally important for us to understand if we're going to really get what Christianity is all about. So each of us has a different story, spiritual journey story. Uh, Some of you grew up in completely non-religious homes. That was the case for my wife. Um, Some of us grew up in places where we maybe dabbled with religion. So maybe your family went to this church or was involved in this religion. Maybe you've tried a few out on your own. Maybe you're a Christmas and Easter only family. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a, in a family that was always taking you to church every single Sunday. That, that was the case for me. But I went to a church that was really good at explaining how it is that a person becomes a Christian. They're not so good about explaining how to live the Christian life once you become a Christian. So I was born and raised in California and uh, um, in a family that you know, wanted me to excel. It wasn't overdue pressure, but, but with my own personality of, of sort of wanting to sort of get after things, you know, I, I did well in school, I did well in sports, I was involved in all the Christian things at, at church. And so I, I decided to go to Trinity University in San Antonio because they had a real good tennis team back then and it was a good academic school, so that's where I'll go and, you know, I'll climb that mountain. But it's pretty funny when I get there, you know, most parents, when they drop their kids off at school, they say, you know, well, you have some fun, but remember, you're here to work and you got your school to do and things. My dad actually said the opposite because he knew me. He said, I know you'll work hard, but remember to have some fun along the way. Right. Now, um, I probably listened to him a little bit here and there, but, but for the most part, I sunk myself in academically, tennis, you know, sports that way, and, and, uh, um, and also just in Christian things. I was involved in all kinds of sort of Christian activities and groups on, on campus. But, you know, something happened along the way. Um, I started getting really tired of the things that I was doing, particularly when it came to Christian ministry activities. I, I'd, I'd lead some group up, and after, you know, three months or so, it would just be so burdensome. And then I'd sort of be a part of this thing or group or outreach, and I, after it was a couple of weeks, I would be really tired. And then it was a couple of days, and, and by my senior year, I really pulled out of everything. And it wasn't because I was any less interested in God or because other things had gotten away. It just sort of got to this place where I don't really know how this Christian life works at all. You see, I think up to that point, the best way to describe me is to say that I was a, a can-do Christian. What I mean by that is that, okay, God, you, you want certain things done. I, you know, I'm physically capable. I'm sufficiently bright. I got enough willpower. Okay, God, I'll, I'll go out there and do it for you. And if you would have asked me at that point in time what it meant to live the Christian life, I would have given you a list of activities probably. You know, read the Bible here, pray, go to church, do that kind of thing. <laughs> but where did I get that idea that that's what it's about? I don't know what your idea of what Christianity is about, but for a lot of people I know, it's about kind of the list of things to do, the do's and the don'ts. Where do we get that idea? 
Why did we think before we became a Christian, or at that point we become a Christian, that, that what we bring to the table doesn't really amount to much, and we need what Christ has done on our behalf to be made right with God, and so we call out to him, but then once we become a Christian, we figure that what we got is good enough. And so we get after it, doing things for God. Galatians chapter 3, boy, it's, it hit me over the head many years back now. Paul in Galatians, he's really upset. Lots of letters that Paul writes to the different churches are sort of pastoral. But this one, I mean, he's just, he's hopping mad. And we get a little glimpse of that here in chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. The Amplified Bible says, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. <laughs> All right. Have you ever gotten a letter like that? <laughs> I don't know how you'd feel. I don't know how they felt. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has mixed things up in your mind? He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You saw what Christ did on your behalf. You did. In fact, you embraced that. It says in verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the life from God? By observing the law? By doing certain kinds of things and then that made you right with God? Or were you made right with God because you believed in what you heard that God himself did what was enough to make you right with him? It's a rhetorical question, right? So he goes on. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, independence, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort. See the contrast here in these verses? Paul's saying, here's how you began the Christian life in complete and utter dependence on what Christ did for you. But now you're trying to make this thing work by yourself. And it just doesn't work that way. And that's what had happened to me. Kept trying to make it work but what I could muster up. Take, for example, reading the Bible, all right? So I, that's a good thing to do. I encourage you to do it. It's what I was doing. But you know, there's not a lot of great deal of value to it if it doesn't actually get us looking back to Jesus and dependence on him. Jesus, he once said to a group of people who were like Nicodemus, he said this, he said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If we read the Bible just to get sort of the facts and figures and to be up and to talk the lingo, and it isn't drawing us back to Christ for life, then even that doesn't really amount to a whole lot. Or take, for example, Christian ministry activity. Good thing, you know, doing outreach things, helping the poor, volunteering in the church. That's great. That's good things. But if, if those things get us off from looking to Jesus, we don't use those things to look to him in dependence, then I'm not so sure what, what value they are. One of the stories that, that just keeps coming back to me, it's, it's Luke chapter 10. And Jesus there in Luke chapter 10, he, he sent out 72 of his followers. 
to be about Christian ministry. I want you to go out. And in fact, he empowers them. He, he tells them, I'm going to give you what it takes to be able to heal people and even to cast out demons. And so they go out and do it. And they come back and they are excited. Because this is pretty cool. <laughs> right? And so they say, Lord, even demons submit to us in your name. And here's Jesus' response. He says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in all this ministry stuff. Rejoice in the fact that we are in relationship. That because you've looked to me, you have life now, life now that will, will, will go on forever. That's what you need to be celebrating. Keep your eyes on me. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Why don't you look at Colossians 2.6. Probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Very simple, very short. In Colossians 2.6, it tells us how to live the Christian life. It says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in him. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Well, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Was it because you did all kinds of good things and God got so impressed with you that he said, okay, you know, here it is. Here's life with me. No. You received Christ Jesus as Lord when you realized that you were bankrupt and you needed what Christ did on your behalf. And so this verse says that the way that we are to go on in the Christian life is with that same sense of dependence. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in him. So when we started this morning, I I said that the question that we're going to look at is what Christianity is all about. And I broke that into two sub-questions. How does we become a Christian and how we live the Christian life once we become a Christian? And I hope that you see here that the answer to both those questions is it's really the same. It's the same. It's not about what we can pull off. It's not about using the right lingo. It's not about playing the part. It's about recognizing our complete need for Christ every day and every moment. That's what Christianity is all about. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you are so clear on this matter and sometimes we get it all fuzzy with it Lord we add things to it we make it complicated um, we get lost in the lingo Lord and we um, don't see the simplicity of what you're calling us to Lord and so we thank you for your word this morning it does bring that clarity we thank you that that you gave us that clarity, and more than that, that you gave us an opportunity to have life, that you were willing to be that snake on the pole that we could look at, Lord, and be safe. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.